If you weren't here last week, welcome. Uh, we are just getting started with our summer series through the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms contains the songs of Israel, and they teach us the language of faith, instructing us how to bring all that we are to our wonderful God. They're written to put steel in our souls, to put words in every emotion, to teach us to respond to God in every situation in life. Uh, who remembers what psalm we talked about last week? 42 and 43, good. So we talked about 42, 43, and the main point of that psalm was how to find hope in God, even in the midst of spiritual depression. Our key idea from that last week, thanks, Blaine. Our key idea from the last week was, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If you've memorized that, I hope it was helpful for you this past week. And by God's strength, you can fight to put your hope in him. This week, we're going to go to a much happier psalm, Psalm 107. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn to Psalm 107. And while you're turning there, let me give you some background about the psalm. Um, you guys know like trilogies, right? The Star Wars trilogy, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Psalm 107 is actually the third in a trilogy of psalms. Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Psalm 107. Psalm 105 recounts the goodness of God to Israel. It walks through the Old Testament narrative all the way from Genesis through the exile, basically praising God for how good he has been to that nation. He remembers his covenant, his promise to them forever. Psalm 106, however, is a lot more dark and actually recounts the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. They were bad, like really bad. And we'll actually get a glimpse of that later on in the sermon. But for now, just believe me, they're really bad. And yet, verse 44 of Psalm 106 is this. Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That means his love reached all the way down, all the way down to the pit of their wickedness. And make no mistake, he hated their sin and he dealt with their sin. But all of it was motivated by what we call his steadfast love, or as other translations say, his loving kindness or his faithful love. In other words, no matter how bad Israel was, God did not forsake them. He still loved them despite their sin. He still loves them despite their sin. And that truth, as we'll see, actually runs like a thread all the way through Psalm 107. So if you have your Bible with me, or with you, please go and open it with, you, with me, and we'll read Psalm 107 out loud, the whole thing. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the, love, the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed down their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. 
Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds of heart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down in the ships, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns the rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of, of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction. It makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let them attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we believe in your love. We believe it because you told us. We believe it, Lord, because Jesus Christ has demonstrated your love for us. And we rejoice, Lord, that in your loving kindness and your grace, that indeed your steadfast love is everlasting. But Lord, so often we forget your love. We're like spoiled children who take your gifts and forget the giver. We're blind to how you love us, your patience, your compassion, your forgiveness. Give us eyes to see, our God. That we would say with the psalmist that your loving kindness is better than life. Therefore, our lips will praise you. Give us eyes to see, Lord, how much you have done for us in your Son. Give us eyes to see, Lord, how perfect you are in all your ways, especially your love towards sinners like us. I thank you, Lord, for every person here. Would you bless us, Lord, and show us your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God loves you. You grew up in the church. You've probably heard that for at least 100 times. And it's probably something you've taken as a basic fact of life. Water is wet. Vegetables are gross. God loves me. You've heard and even probably memorized the most famous verse in the world, John 3.16. Right? For God's love of the world, he gives his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. I know you know it. The love of God is something that we easily take for granted, 
something we just assume. It's like, well, duh, God loves me. Of course he loves me. And in a sense, that's actually right. Because the scripture is loud and clear about his love. Psalm 136 says that his love is everlasting 26 times in one psalm. Lamentations 3 says that his love never ceases, that it never comes to an end. 1 Corinthians 13, the very famous passage about love, says that love is patient, kind, generous, gentle. That describes God's love for us. And Romans 8, my personal favorite, says his love overcomes death, life, angels, principalities, rulers, things today, things tomorrow, things forever, demons, angels, all creation. God's love overcomes so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So yeah, it's a rock-solid, absolutely unbreakable reality. God loves us. I mean, I bet you ask a kindergartner in children's ministry, does God love you? They'd be like, yeah, he does. So if everyone knows this, and everyone believes this, why are we talking about it? Because while we might say we know that we know the love of God, I'm pretty sure that sometimes we don't. When your parents treat you unfairly, do you really believe that God loves you? When your friends backstab you, do you really believe that God loves you then? When you get hurt or sick, do you still believe that God loves you? When you get a bad grade on a test or you fail some competition, do you still believe that God loves you then? When someone you love, like a grandma or grandpa, or even your mom or your dad, dies, does God still love you then? Or when you're lonely or depressed or discouraged or hurt, does God still love you? Or maybe just even more basically, when it doesn't feel like God loves you, does God still love you then? When we're suffering, or just when things aren't going our way, it's really easy to interpret God's love through our suffering, rather than interpreting our suffering through God's love. We easily ask, how could a loving God treat me this way? Maybe then he just doesn't love me as much as I thought he did. Even if we're not suffering, in the normal kind of rhythm of life, it's easy to live as if we didn't believe in God, as we didn't believe in the cross, as if we didn't believe in the gospel, as if he had no influence on our lives at all. We eat, we sleep, we study, we play, we repeat, and we grind through school, practices, clubs, activities, chores, and we don't even give a second thought, wow, does God actually love me? And if he does, how does that change how I live? Are we really living in light of God's love then? Do we really believe that God loves us if we don't even think about it? Maybe for you, the love of God is kind of this abstract reality, right? Um, maybe it's a nice thought, but it's really detached from, you know, the world that we live in. It's kind of like the moon. You acknowledge, okay, the moon is there. You know, I, I sometimes see it, sometimes don't. But it doesn't change how I live my life. It's just something in the sky to look at. Or maybe you really want to know the love of God more. It's not just an abstract reality, but you don't know how. You try not to sin, you try to do the Christian things, you try to believe in his love, but honestly, it's just discouraging. How, how do you know he really loves you? I mean, it's easy to see the love of your parents, right? They like, literally get you up in the morning, they feed you, they clothe you, they take care of you. But God's love seems somehow not as real as your parents. Regardless of where you are, I contend, I say, that the love of God changes everything. Everything about who we are, how we live, and what we love. The people of God are loved by a love that reaches from the heights of the mountains down to the depths of the sea. The breath of his love goes from the loudest shouts of joy all the way to the faintest whispers of peace. God's love is the world we live in, if you're a Christian. 
It's like a garden of the sweetest flowers and the most delightful of foods. It's the air we breathe. It's the spring in our step. It's the hope in our hearts, the solace of our souls, the completion of our comfort. God's love is great. And I want you to know it. The only question is, do we have eyes to see it? Do we really believe that God loves us? Psalm 107 teaches us how. It proclaims his steadfast love. Remember that phrase, his steadfast love, and shows us that indeed it is wonderful. It's wonderful. Our key idea for today comes from just one verse, the first verse of our psalm, and is this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Look at me the first verse. Well, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now look at me the last verse. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord. This is our first point, and it will take up, I think, most of our time today. So this psalm is a prolonged meditation, a long thought about the goodness and love of God. It's an invitation to think hard about how much God has loved his people. So I want you to think, ask yourself, how has God loved you? How has God loved you? How has he been your savior, your satisfaction, your rescuer, your help, your comfort? And if you're taking notes, maybe on the side you can start making a list. All the ways God has loved me. Start writing it down as you listen to the sermon. Now, in the last verse and the first verse of our psalm, it says steadfast love. Steadfast love. That's a very important word in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is pronounced hesed. It means loving kindness, faithful love, loyal love, or in English Standard Version, a steadfast love. It's his covenant-keeping love, his promise-keeping love. As uh, one children's Bible says it, I know you're not children, but I like the translation. This person translates it as, it's God's never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. I think that's good. Now, unpacking that kind of love is actually really hard. Usually when we think of God's love, we think of something on earth, and we kind of extrapolate to something in heaven, right? We take the best example of love we can think of down here, maybe the love of a husband and a wife, or the love of a mother and a child, and we multiply by like some big number in our heads and say, okay, God's love is like that, right? Maybe like, oh, I love pizza, but God's love for me is like my love for pizza times 10 billion, right? Now, that's not unreasonable. We've kind of learned most everything by analogy, but think of this. 1 John 4, 8, and 16. Say, God is love. That's way different than saying God is loving. God is love. It means he himself is the definition, the fountain of love, the spring from which all other loves come from. It's not merely an attribute that he adopts or something that's part of his character. It's who he is. God is love. That means even the best loves of this earth are at best a derivative, a lesser version, of the perfect love from the perfect lover. Even the best marriage you could ever imagine is but a shadow of the wondrous love of God. The best friendship you could ever have with someone here is but an echo of the wonderful love of God. That means that the love of this earth, even the greatest love of our imaginations, are kind of like little candlelights compared to the sun. Sure, a candlelight has light and heat, you know, it's truly on fire, but it will never teach you about the sun. They're completely, categorically separate. Every earthly love is finite. We are limited both in our willingness and our capacity to love. 
God is present in all places at all times and can do all things. God's love is infinite. Every earthly love is corrupted. We have selfish motives. We have corrupted desires mixed in with our true love. But God's love is pure. It's true. It's unblemished. God's love is perfect. Every earthly love is temporary. We change. Maybe we move away. We stop loving someone just because we don't want to anymore. Or we die. Our love ceases. But God has been and will always be. His love is everlasting. I mean, preparing for this is actually really humbling, right? Like, how do you describe something that's everlasting and infinite? I feel like, okay, someone said to me, here's a straw, Keith. Now go suck up the whole ocean. Go. Like, what? That's impossible, right? Or I feel like someone took a crayon and, like, glued it to my nose and said, okay, now paint the Yosemite Valley. It's impossible. I cannot do it. It feels, again, I'm out of my depth, right? The love of God is matchless. It's boundless. It's generous. It's free. It's higher than the heights of heaven. It's deeper than the depths of the earth. We will sing of his great love forever in heaven and we'll never get closer to the end of the song. We'll marvel at his great love for us for all eternity. And we'll never grow tired of it. We'll just grow in our satisfaction, our thankfulness that he would choose to love sinners like us. This is the wonderful love of God. But how does God show this? Does he like boom from heaven? You know, like, I love you. Like every day. I've never heard that. God doesn't show his love like that. Instead, he acts. He acts. And he acts by making us his own. This is point A. The Lord redeems his people. Verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. To be redeemed means to be made the people of God. It means he has brought you. He has saved you. He has made you his own. God's love is a love that brings people back. That makes them his sons and daughters. It's like a father adopting a child. Or a mother rescuing a lost child. He makes us his. When we're redeemed, we become his people. Verse 3 says, And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now this verse specifically is a reference to how God has rescued Israel from exile. Israel from exile. And brings them back to the promised land. Now, I don't think anyone here is an Israelite. No one? Okay. I'm not either. Um, but I actually want to slow down here. I want to take a long look at the nation of Israel. So kind of buckle up. Okay, we're going to go through the whole entire Old Testament. Just kidding. Um, we're going to go back one chapter to Psalm 106. And I want you to show you God's love for the nation of Israel. And the reason why, before we do that, the reason why is because if you're convinced for God's love for Israel, who, by the way, is a bad people, a sinful people, you'll be convinced that God's love for Israel is not earned. It's nothing that Israel can do. It's not because Israel is a good nation that God loves them. If you're convinced that that's how God has loved Israel, then you'll be convinced that this same God who loved Israel is the same God who loves you. He doesn't love you because you're good. You're not good. If you're convinced of that, then you can rest in the God who loves you because he loves you. He loves you with a love that is persisting, forgiving, unfading, persevering. If you're convinced of that, then you'll realize the love of God for you is the love that exceeds the heavens and overflows the oceans. It's the love that reaches all the way down to where you are, wherever you think you are. And it's the love that's not rooted in you, but actually rooted in God. That's why I want to take a look at Israel. So, if you could, let's buckle up and get into the history of Israel. Before we go to Psalm 106, I want to talk about one passage in Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, 
God says, The Lord your God has chosen you, has chosen you Israel, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel's treasured, beloved by God. Why? Verse 7 says, It was not because you were more number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. So why? why? Why did God love Israel? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. Did you catch that? The Lord set his love on you and chose you. Why, God? Because the Lord loves you. The logic is kind of weird, right? Back it up. The foundation of the love of God for Israel is God's love for Israel. In other words, God loves Israel because he wants to love Israel. That's it. To say it another way, the reason why God loves Israel is not Israel. It's nothing Israel could offer God, nothing Israel could do for God, nothing Israel might become for God, but it's actually just because of God himself. God loves Israel simply because he loves Israel. And we can see that in Psalm 106. So if you go back just one chapter from Psalm 107 and go to verse 7. From the very beginning of history, we'll see that Israel was forgetful of God and rebellious. Verse 7 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So you know the story, right? Red Sea splits. Israel walks through, and they follow God. They sing praises to him for a little. Look at verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Look at verse 19. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Now remember, the golden calf was basically a few weeks after the Red Sea. How quickly they forgot. Quickly they turned to worshiping idols. So how did God respond? Did, you know, abandon them? Okay, I'm done with you, Israel. Forget about it. Um, peace. Bye. No. Even when they sinned, he loved them and brought them to the promised land, just like he said. But once in the promised land, look at verse 34 now. They did not destroy the peoples, as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did, a.k.a. they became like unbelievers. They served their idols. They became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the, blood, and the land was polluted with blood. The Israelites became bad. In fact, they became worse than all the other nations around them. They started killing their kids to worship their false gods. Verse 40. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred, he hated his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, that's exile, so that those who hated them ruled over them. God hated what they had done. He was not okay with it. From an outsider perspective, it might look like God had given up on Israel. But no. Look at verse 44. Nevertheless, they looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Do you see that? Thousands of years of Israel's disobedience. Thousands of years of God pleading with them, don't do that. Love me, worship me, and they refused to. Yet the Lord did not diminish in his love. He persisted in his love. He disciplined them, he corrected them, he instructed them, he went after them, 
And when he sees them cry out finally for him, he remembers his covenant. He doesn't forget. They forgot. They completely forgot God. He never forgot them. And he stopped punishing them for their sins and instead forgave them according to his steadfast love. He loved them despite who they were because he is God. Now it's Psalm 106. Psalm 107, which we're talking about today, is a retelling of God's faithful love to Israel. Right? Verse 6, 13, 19, and 28 say that Israel cried to him. In their trouble, their sin, they came to the end of themselves. They said, Lord, help us. Lord, rescue us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, save us. And he saved them. He saved them. Every single time, he saved them. The love of God for Israel is his steadfast love. Steadfast means enduring, unconquerable, unalterable, overflowing, generous, free. Not even the most wicked of sinners and the wickedness of sin could cancel God's everlasting love. God's written the contract. He signed the dotted line. He will not go back on his word. He's put on the ring, and he's sworn to love for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, in good behavior and in bad behavior. He will not break his covenant with his people. There's no other love like this. I don't even know what to compare it to because it's so great. Now, again, we're not Israel, right? But if we believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are God's people. And he loves us with the same kind of love with which he loved Israel, despite their sin. He's zealously committed to us. He forgives, he saves, he rescues, he hears, he protects, he answers us. Now, sometimes it's hard to see. I don't think anyone here would fight me when I say God loves you. You're probably like, yeah, I agree with you, right? I hope so, at least. Um, but I think it's sometimes hard to really believe in our hearts. Right? Does God really love me? How do, how do I know that for sure? And so one of the actually really helpful things we can do is by looking at, of, looking at stories of God's love for people. God's love for people. And this psalm gives us four pictures of his love to four types of people. First, God loves the wanderers. Second, God loves the prisoners. Third, God loves the fools. And fourth, God loves the distressed. First, God loves the wanderers, verses 4 and 9. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. This reminds us of Israel walking around the desert, right? Trying to find water and food. They were as good as dead without the love of God. But God saved them. Look at verse 6. They cried out to the Lord in their distress, and he delivered them from their distress distress. He led them by a straight way until they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God saves these people by giving them exactly what they need. Food and shelter. Right? He loves them by satisfying their hungry souls. I mean, imagine how thankful you would be if God had just rescued you from the desert. You'd sing praises to him, because he had done this for you. Today, in a similar way, God loves us. He loves you by giving you life. From your first breath when you cried, all the way until today. He has loved you by giving you drink and food every single day of your life. He has loved you by giving you a place to sleep at night, a family to call your own, friends to care for you. He's not distant from the everyday things of life. God is the one who actively sustains every living thing. If he were to withdraw his hand, you'd all be dead. I'd be dead. Everything would be dead. But no, he actively holds our life in the palm of his hand. The reason why we breathe, the reason, the reason why our hearts beat, the reason why we stay alive is because 
He loves us and is giving us life. James 1 says that every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So let's give thanks to him that we live at all. Second, God loves the prisoners. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. This reminds us of the consequences of Israel's sin. Israel rebelled against the word of God, therefore God gave them imprisonment, affliction, hard labor, darkness, shadow of death, hopelessness. But verse 13, they cried to the Lord in their distress. He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Even though they were rebels, God rescued them. He sets the prisoners free and he transformed them from rebels into worshipers. I mean, most of us have never been in prison for our sins, even though most of us deserve to be in prison for our sins. But we all know what it's like to dwell in hopelessness, to feel lost in our side, inside. And in those hard times, God has loved you. He's loved you by humbling you to show you that you need him. He's loved you by showing you mercy for not instantly killing you for your sins. He's loved you by giving you hope, even in times of hopelessness. God's never abandoned you. He's been there every single step of the way. Third, God loves the fool. Some were fools through their sinful ways. Because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Now, when the Bible speaks of a fool, it's not talking about, who someone, it's not talking about someone who's intellectually dumb. Right? So don't think that. Instead, it's talking about someone who is spiritually stupid, who's morally bankrupt, who does not love God or his ways. Fools hate the wisdom and instruction of the word of God. They ignore him, and they insist that their way is right. Because of their sin, they reap affliction and pain. And these fools, in verse 17 and 18, were so distressed they didn't even want to eat. All they wanted was death. But verse 19, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Now, this category hits hardest for me because I don't have to try to be foolish. I just am. That's my personality. That's who I am. I'm spiritually stubborn. I'm resistant to the ways of God. I'm like a wandering sheep who insists he knows what's right. And I leave the shepherd. Every single time, the good shepherd has brought me back. He calls me to the path of righteousness. And with, with loving arms, he yanks me back to his fold. God has also loved you. He knows all your foolishness and your sin. He's loved you even by afflicting you to show you your foolishness. He loved you by sending his word to you. He's loved you by bringing you to himself and giving you reason to give thanks to him. He's loved you by giving you a heart that even wants to sing songs of joy. The fact that you want to sing at all is a testimony to his love. Fourth, God loves the distressed. This is talking about the sea-hardened sailors, verses 23 through 32. I won't read all of it. Basically, they're in the storm of their lives. They're completely hopeless. They've lost any hope that they'll be rescued. The waves are crashing. The wind is howling. The boat is sinking. They have no hope. Verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, 
for his loving, for his wondrous works to the children of men. In other words, God can save the most hopeless of persons. No circumstances beyond his reach. None. Most likely, none of you have faced death or been afraid for your life. But when you do, or if you do, God will love you even then. At the very end, he will be your only hope. And a quick comment of verse 29 and 30. Does it remind you of anything? He made the storm be still. Who does that remind you of? We had sermons from a similar event in the book of Mark where Jesus himself calms the storm for the disciples. Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't know for sure. I've never talked to the apostles. But I can't imagine thinking that when they read this psalm, they thought of Christ. And they thought of how much of a treasure this would be. This would remind them of how much God had loved them, even in this storm. Now, I shared four stories. I want to recap a little bit. First lesson. God saves all kinds of people. God loves the wanderers, the prisoners, the fools, the distressed. These stories of love are not about moral church kids. They're not about good students. They're not, they're not about the children of Christians. God is a savior who saves all kinds of people. Do you believe that? Every ethnicity, every intelligence, every nation, every kind of person, God saves. And most of us here are from a certain background, maybe ethnic or socioeconomic, but we should never, ever think that the love of God is restricted to people like us. God saves every kind of person, even the quote-unquote least likely to believe in him. God's love is great. It goes beyond who we think might be likely to be saved. Second, the rescued only have one thing to offer God, their need. Their need. Now, you see these people, they're not trying to bargain with God, right? They're not saying like, oh, like, well, I did this really good thing, so please save me. They're not trying to say, okay, my Bible reading is good, my theology is perfect, and therefore I can come to you now, God. No, they're desperate. They're absolutely desperate. They have no hope. They've flung themselves on the mercy of God, and they said, save us. Four times the psalm says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Four times it says, and he delivered them from their distress. We have nothing to offer to God to buy his love. Nothing. We can't trade our Bible knowledge, our good deeds, our grades, our morality, our so-called goodness, and say, oh, therefore I deserve the love of God. Why does God love us? Why does he love sinners who fail in so many countless ways? What is the reason, the foundation for why he loves us? Remember Israel? He loved them because he loved them. He loves you because he loves you. That's it. That's the foundation. He loves you because he loves you. Third, God delights to save sinners. Now, this psalm is a celebration, right? It's not all sad and dour like uh, Psalm 42, 43 was. It's a psalm that should be shouted from the rooftops, that should be sung loud and proud and gladly. God is not merely willing to save sinners. Like, oh my gosh, i got to save that guy again. No, he takes great delight in it. Ezekiel says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Meaning he takes delight when people come to him. He takes delight when people cry out to him for salvation. He takes delight in the fact that they want him to be their God. That's the kind of God who loves us. A joyful God. A willingly, loving, joyful God. Now his love is great and wonderful. But now in verse 33, the psalm takes a turn and shows us how even in his justice he can perform acts of love. I will read the whole thing just for the sake of time. 
But you'll notice that he makes the rivers into deserts, he makes the springs of water into thirsty ground. Basically, he's turning environments from good to bad, right? He also turns environments from bad to good. Why does he do that? Two things. The Lord humbles the exalted. He humbles the exalted. Meaning he punishes the land because of what the evil, because of the evil that people do. He judges arrogant men who oppress, who bring about evil and sorrow. Even this is an outworking of his love. Namely, his love for his righteousness. Secondly, on the flip side, the Lord also exalts the humble. He lifts up the humble. He makes the desert into a paradise. He makes the wastelands into oasis. He cares for the hungry, the needy, the afflicted. He's the one who loves the unloved, who heals the hurting, who cares for the lost. That's our God. Even in his justice, when he brings down and raises up, he's working out his love. And the result is verse 42. The upright see it. They see his works. And they're glad. And all wickedness, all wickedness shuts its mouth. Second point. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The last verse is this. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So, let's be wise together. Let's think about it. Let's think about God's steadfast love. The love of God is like a vast mountain range. It dominates the landscape of time, extends all the way from eternity past, all the way into eternity future. We've seen some of that landscape today, namely in God's love for Israel. But the trail of God's faithful love leads us all the way up to the apex of this mountain range, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. This peak is the highest. It's the most glorious peak. It casts its influence over every age, for the cross is the loudest shout from God in the history of the world that he loves sinners. The cross is the way for us to enter into the love of God. And once you've entered into the love of God, you're home. You're home. You'll never be lost. On Sunday, Tim preached on Psalm 103. You guys remember that? He talked about the benefits of God's love for us. Now, let's rehearse some of those benefits. The blessings of his love for us as we walk a little bit on this mountain road. If you're part of his family, if you believe in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, God has loved you from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 God has forgiven you of all your sins, past, present, and future. Ephesians 1.7 God has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 God has adopted you and made you a son or daughter of the king of everything. Romans 8.14-17 God has brought you into his, into his kingdom as an inheritor of all the promises, a share of his dominion. Colossians 1, 13, Ephesians 2, 6. God has clothed you with Christ's righteousness and declared you perfect, justified in his eyes. It's a righteousness given not as a wage, something you earned, but as a gift. Romans 3, 24. God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit as a promise that he will fulfill all of his promises made to you. Ephesians 1, 13. These benefits are not something that you unlock. Like you're playing a video game and each level you get something else. They're granted immediately from the moment you believe. They're yours. But we have still higher to go. In John 17, which Kim is actually preaching through on Sundays, Jesus prays to God the Father that the world may know, first, that you sent me, and second, that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? God loves us even as he has loved his son. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. 
That means we're wrapped up in the eternal love of God the Father for God the Son. We're caught up in their divine rejoicing, the love that has lasted for literally forever and will extend for forever. We are partakers of this heavenly love, bound to Jesus Christ as his church, as his bride. We're beloved, not because of who we are, because of who God is. So if you've ever asked yourself, man, when will God stop loving me? Or will he love me less? He will. The moment he stops loving his son, the moment he stops loving his son to the infinite degree, that can never happen. It will never happen. Never, ever, ever will it happen because his steadfast love is everlasting. Everlasting. God's love redeems, justifies, transforms, satisfies, frees, saves, delivers, forgives, adopts, restores, sanctifies, juvenates, rejuvenates freely. God has loved us because he loved us, and he will never, ever change. You need to steep your soul in the love of God. You need to meditate upon the steadfast, never-ending, overcoming love of Yahweh, your God. He loves us in Christ, and nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. Believe that. It's true. Father, how kind you are to us. You love us, Lord, and you show us, Lord, in so many different ways, through our family, through our church, through our friends, even just, Lord, through your word and through the preaching and through songs, Lord, how truly you love us. We ask, Lord, for your help, that we'd even understand your love, that we would know that it is everlasting, that, Father, it's rooted not in who we are, not what we could do, not what we have done, but, Lord, only in you, and that is good. We thank you that your love exceeds Lord, our, our greatest imaginations and reaches all the way down, Lord, to sinners like us. No one and nothing Lord, is beyond your love. We praise you, Father, for Daniel, for Sophia, for Morgan, for the rest of the eighth graders as we move up to high school. Lord, we do pray that you continue to bless them and show them your love, Lord, and use them, Father, for your own glory. I thank you so much, Father, for this time. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.